Section 3 of The Case of the Golden Bullet by Grace Isabel Colbron and Augusta Groner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Commissioner and Muller continued their researches in silence and with less interest than before. They found a heap of loose ashes in the bedroom stove. Letters and other trifles had been burned there. Muller raked out the heap very carefully, but the writing on the few pieces of paper still left whole was quite illegible. There were several envelopes in the wastebasket, but all of them were dated several months back. There was nothing that could give the slightest clue. The letter written by the murdered man was sufficient proof that his death had been an act of vengeance. But who was it who carried out this secret, terrible deed? The victim had not been allowed the time to write down the name of his murderer. Horn took the letter into his keeping. Then he left the room, followed by Muller and the valet, to look about the rest of the house as far as possible. This was not very far, for the second story was closed off by a tall iron grating. "'Is the house locked during the daytime?' asked Horn of the servant. "'The front door is, but the side door into the garden is usually open.' "'Has it ever happened that anyone got into the house from this side door without your knowing it?' "'No, sir. The garden has a high wall around it, and there is an extra protection on that side toward the promenade. "'But there's a little gate there?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Is that usually closed?' "'We never use the key for that, sir. It has a trick lock that you can't open unless you know how.' "'You said yesterday evening you went to the theatre. Did your master give you permission to go?' "'Yes, sir. It's about a year now that he gave me money for a theater ticket every Saturday evening. He was very kind. "'Did you come into the house last night by the front door or through the garden?' "'Through the garden, sir. I walked down the promenade from the theater.' "'And you didn't notice anything? You saw no traces of footsteps?' "'No, sir. I didn't notice anything unusual. We shut the side door and the garden door every evening also.' It was closed yesterday, and I found the key. We've only got one key to the garden door, in the same place where I was told to hide it when I went out in the evening. What place was that? In one of the pails by the well. You say you were told to hide it there? Yes, sir. The professor told me. He'd go out in the evening sometimes, too, I suppose, and he wanted to be able to come in that way if necessary. And no one else knew where the key was hidden? "'No one else, sir. It's nearly a year now that we've been alone in the house. Who else should know of it?' "'When you looked through the keyhole last night, are you sure that the professor was still alive?' "'Why, yes, sir. Of course I couldn't say so surely. I thought he was reading or writing. But, oh, dear Lord! There he was this morning, nearly twelve hours later, in the same position.' Johann shivered at the thought that he might have seen his master sitting at his desk, already a corpse. "'He must have been dead when you came home. Don't you think the sound of that shot would likely have wakened you?' "'Yes, sir, I think likely, sir,' murmured Johann. "'But if the murderer could get into the house, how could he get into the apartment?' "'There must have been a third key of which you knew nothing,' answered Horn turning again to Muller. It's strange still how Fellner could have been shot, for the window shutters were fastened and quite uninjured, 
and both doors were locked on the inside. As he said these words, Horn looked sharply at his subordinate, but Miller's calm face did not give the slightest clue to his thoughts. The experienced police commissioner was pleased and yet slightly angered at this behavior on the part of the detective. He knew that it was quite possible that Muller had already formed a clear opinion about the case, and that he was merely keeping it to himself. And yet he was glad to see that the little detective had apparently learned a lesson from his recent mistake concerning the death of Mrs. Knipe that he had somewhat lost his confidence in his hitherto unerring instinct, and did not care to express any opinion until he had studied the matter a little closer. The commissioner was just a bit vain, and just a little bit jealous, of this humble detective's fame. Muller shrugged his shoulders at the remark of his superior, and the two men stood silent, thinking over the case, as the police chief appeared, accompanied by the doctor, a clerk, and two hospital attendants. The chief commissioner received the report of what had been discovered, while the corpse was laid on a bier to be taken to the hospital. Muller handed the commissioner his hat and cane, and helped him into his overcoat. Horn noticed that the detective himself was making no preparations to go out. "'Aren't you coming with us?' he asked, astonished. "'I hope the gentleman will allow me to remain here for a little while longer,' answered Muller modestly. "'But you know that we will have to close the apartment officially,' said Horn, his voice sharpening in his surprise and displeasure. "'I do not need to be in these rooms any longer.' "'Don't let them disturb you, my dear Muller. We will allow your keenness all possible leeway here,' the head of police spoke with calm politeness, but Muller started and shivered. The emphasis on here showed him that even the head of the department had been incensed at his suggestion that the beautiful Mrs. Knipe had died of her own free will. It had been his assertion of this which, coming to the ears of the bereaved husband, had enraged and embittered him, and had turned the power of his influence with the high authorities against the detective. Muller knew how greatly he had fallen from favor in the police department, and the words of his respected superior showed him that he was still in disgrace. But the strange, quiet smile was still on his lips, as, with his usual humble deference, he accompanied the others to the sidewalk. Before the commissioners left the house, the chief commanded Johann to answer carefully any questions Muller might put to him. "'He'll find something, you may be sure.' said Horn, as they drove off in the cab. "'Let him. That's his business. He's bound to see more than the rest of us,' smiled the older official, good-naturedly. "'But in spite of it, he'll never get any further than the vestibule. He'll be making bows to us to the end of his days.' "'You think so? I've wondered at the man. I know his fame in the capital, indeed, in police circles all over Austria and Germany.' It seems hard on him to be transferred to this small town, now that he is growing old. I wondered why he hasn't done more for himself, with his gifts. He never will, replied the chief. He may win more fame, he may still go on winning triumphs, but he will never go into a circle. He'll never forge ahead as his capabilities deserve. Muller's peculiarity is that his genius, for the man is undeniably a genius, 
will always make concessions to his heart, just at the moment when he is about to do something great, and his triumph is lost. Horn looked up at his superior, whom, in spite of his good nature, he knew to be a sharp, keen, capable police official. "'I forgot you have known Muller longer than the rest of us,' he said. "'What was that you said about his heart?' "'I said that it is one of those inconvenient hearts "'which will always make itself noticeable at the wrong time. "'Muller's heart has played several tricks on the police department, "'which has, at other times, profited so well by his genius. "'He is a strange mixture. "'While he is on the trail of the criminal, he is like the bloodhound. "'He does not seem to know fatigue or hunger. "'His whole being is absorbed by the excitement of the chase.' He has done many a brilliant service to the cause of justice. He has discovered the guilt, or the innocence, of many in cases where the official department was as blind as justice is proverbially supposed to be. Joseph Muller has become the idol of all who are engaged in this weary business of hunting down wrong and punishing crime. He is without peer in his profession, but he has also become the idol of some of the criminals. For if he discovers, as sometimes happens, that the criminal is a good sort after all, he is just as likely to warn his prey once he has all the proofs of the guilt, and a conviction is certain. Possibly this is his way of taking the sting from his irresistible impulse to ferret out hidden mysteries. But it is rather inconvenient, and he has hurt himself badly by it. They were tired of his peculiarities at the capital, and wanted to make his years an excuse to discharge him. I happened to get wind of it, and it was my weakness for him that saved him. Yes, you brought him here when they transferred you to this town. I remember now. I'm afraid it wasn't such a good thing for him, after all. Nothing ever happens here, and a gift like Muller's needs occupation to keep it fresh. I'm afraid his talents will dull here and wither away. The man has grown perceptibly older in his inaction. His mind is like a high-bred horse that needs exercise to keep it in good condition. He hasn't grown rich at his work either, said Horn. No, there's not much chance for a police detective to get rich. I've often wondered why Muller never had the energy to set up a business for himself. He might have won fame and fortune as private detective. But he's gone on plodding along as a police subordinate, and letting the department get all the credit for his most brilliant achievements. It's a sort of incorrigible humbleness of nature, and then, you know, he had the misfortune to be unjustly sentenced to a term in prison in his early youth. No, I did not know that. The stigma stuck to his name, and finally drove him to take up this work. I don't think Muller realized when he began just how great his gift is. I don't know that he really knows it now. He seems to do it because he likes it. He is a queer sort of man. End of Section 3